We are on overtime. I expect to be buzzed at five minutes, and that will be the reason for the comparative uh, brevity of what I have to say, because looking at these faces out here, I would be happy to talk to you for a long time, and if we can talk later when we're off schedule, that will be my great pleasure. Since this is the American Academy of Achievement, I want to say a word about achievement, a word about America, but I will come at it very obliquely. I have just returned from Auschwitz, where uh, the uh, serial of War and Remembrance is now being filmed. War and Remembrance is the main story I had to tell. The Winds of War was a prologue to it. I think some of you have read it. Some of you, more of you have seen it on television. Uh, Robert Mitchum will play Pug Henry again in uh, War and Remembrance. There is a new Natalie played by Jane Seymour and uh, Aaron Jastrow, her uncle, who emerges as perhaps the central figure in War and Remembrance is being played by Sir John Gielgud. I've Uh, this is not an advertisement that's two years off. I've seen some of the raw film, and I'm, I'm, I think that I will be very proud of, of the final product, and that uh, you will be entertained and moved and informed, which is what the narrative art is all about. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what happened in Auschwitz. a very difficult place to visit. It would be for any one of you, much more so for someone of a Jewish background. I had to go there a couple of times to do the research for the Winds of War and War and Remembrance. Then Auschwitz was abandoned except for a museum section, a quiet place with the tracks rusting that ominous frowning entrance that so many of you have seen in pictures, abandoned, the huts standing empty, and Polish peasants mowing the fields of Birkenau. This time, I came there toward evening, and they were shooting a recreation of the arrival of a train. The train pulled in. It was the same train, same type of train of 45 years ago. They got the right train. This is the first time that there has ever been filming in Auschwitz. The Polish government granted it, I think, because they appreciated the seriousness of this undertaking. I say the train pulled in, cameras were grinding, it was on the very ramp where the Jews did detrain to be selected to live or to die. Along the ramp were posted Polish actors in SS uniforms with attack dogs barking on tight leashes frighteningly real. Out of the train when it stopped came pouring 
about a thousand shabbily dressed people with yellow stars on their clothing, beaten by SS men driving them off the train. That was a rehearsal. And then they did the whole thing again for the cameras, by which time it was dark and terrible glaring floodlights, such as really beat on the arrivals at, uh, arrivers at outfits, were shining down on the ramp. And I was there watching this thing. And as this eerily real recreation of what happened 45 years ago went on, there were also jarringly unreal things happening. Camera directions being shouted, change those lights, have those people move more forward. No, let those Jews step back. We want the dogs to start barking now. All the things that go on when you, when you stage something that is, that is just a show. I stood there watching all this and feeling peculiarly real and unreal at once. You heard the talk about what is real and what is unreal. Well, here was a clash of reality and unreality, such as happens once in, in a lifetime. For beyond this staging of a real thing, there were the watchtowers shadowy in the gloom and the long lines of the barbed wire still there. And since to some extent we honor Risa here to talk about ourselves. You'll forgive me for saying this, that as I stood there watching all this happening, it was a grinding and yet an exalting moment. And I said to myself, all this is happening because for seven long years, not knowing whether I would live or die because I was approaching my 60s, I sat in a room by myself and ground away day by day, persevering, racing the calendar to finish War in Remembrance. But of course it was not just me. The American Broadcasting Corporation is venturing a gigantic sum of money to make not only these scenes, they are going to recreate the Battle of Midway, an entire D-Day will be brought to life again. This is a recreation of the Second World War as well as the passions and the perils of the Henry and the Jastrow families. And a great deal of talent has gone into it. But when I say I want to talk about America, I want to say about this serial, and I say nothing now about quality. That's for you to judge when you see it. But the scale and the power of this undertaking, a 30-hour serial venturing to retell the entire Second World War. That is something which in its scale and in its power could only be American. There is no other culture on the face of this little planet which would make such a brave venture at this time and in this way, and with free, utter freedom from governmental intervention, because this is a way of making money in our free enterprise system. And now a word about achievement. 
That was the moment when I stood there, when possibly for the first time in my life, I felt that this was achievement after the long grind of 16 years to do the whole thing and the seven racing years of war remembrance. And here's what I have to say to you about that moment. Lord Chesterfield wrote in a letter to his son, perseverance has surprising effects. And I will tell you what effect perseverance has. Without perseverance, this thing that they call greatness when they talk about us honorees, without this perseverance, greatness is a vain dream. With perseverance, and I say this to every one of you in this room, with perseverance, you are halfway to greatness, whatever that is. time for all the questions, but we'll take a couple. Let's start with the young lady on that far side. Yes. I have recently had the fascinating experience of visiting the Soviet Union and was approached by a young man who was able to speak English and said to me, what, what, is, the, <laughs> what is the position of the Jews in America? Are they safe? Are they still free? Are they free? And I was amazed by, by his lack of any information sources at all about what was happening in the entire section, this entire section of the world. And would you, could you comment on the situation of Jews in the Soviet Union? And is there any way we can help? It's a large question uh, for which there is no time to reply. The situation in, of the Jews in uh, the Soviet Union is catastrophic. The Soviet Union follows a systematic practice of suppressing this one nationality of all nationalities, whereas they encourage all their, all their subdued nationalities, because make no mistake about it, the Soviet Union is, is an empire of subdued nationalities run by one minority, the great Russians, but they encourage the teaching of other languages not the Hebrew language, not the Yiddish language. They don't allow them to pursue their culture, and they don't allow them to leave. It's catastrophic. What we can do about it is what those people who are activists do. Fight in every possible way that involves uh, ac activism. Now, I, well, let me say one more word about this cutoff of the communist world. And I, I visited the, the People's Republic of China, where, to my astonishment, my War and Remembrance in the Windsor have been translated and been widely read. I was told by scholars there when I visited them that the reading of these books gave them the first inkling that the Jews still existed and that the Holocaust had occurred. That the Holocaust had occurred. That's how cut off the communist world is. I'm talking now not only of, 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 of China, which is such a, a, an alien culture, but even the Soviet Union. The, the control is, is, is fearful. And anyone 
who in an argument with you tries to say, well, the Soviet Union and the Americans are really, you know, just two sides of the same coin, just confrontations. It is a bunch of bull. God forgive me for using such coarse language in the presence of young ears. <laughs> The Soviet Union is a giant prison, and here we are free. Next question. Uh, as I was listening to your speech um, about your, the great undertaking you're taking, I do believe it is a great undertaking. Um, you said how no other culture in the world would be able to um, even begin such an undertaking, and I agree with you. And you continue to say that um, it was through great perseverance that we were doing this and that through the freedom of our government that we were doing this and I continue to agree with you but then you you close it by saying that that it's such a great thing that we can do this because it's a means of making money and I said is that what the purpose is is that why you're do is that why we're doing it is the main is our main goal as we've been taught in the public school system so much just to make money because if it is I'll sell my physics books and I'll sell my chemistry books and I'll go out and get a job because that's if that's our main goal. That's a great question. And I, I said that in the hope that somebody would, that I, I saw you were jarred and you were supposed to be jarred. Of course the purpose is not to make money. That's what the, the empty ephemera of television and the silly and trashy or, or you know, time-killing part of television is all about. But what I'm saying is this. This system enables non-governmental people to do something of this magnitude, but always within the frame of making money. They, that's how they exist. If this were a governmental, we'll say it was, it was a PBS, for example, and, let, and, and parenthetically, I went to PBS first with the winds of war. That is to say, they, they approached me. I never thought it could be televised. They came to me, and as soon as they went into the budgetary question, that was the end of it, because it cost... $40 million to mount the winds of war, and it will cost more than twice as much in the end to, to mount war and remembrance. And PBS, which doesn't have to make, quote, make money, couldn't handle it. But ABC, because it does make money and is in a commercial frame, it was able to do it. Now, I'll tell you one more thing about this. Before I would allow winds of war to be televised, I wrote a contract unique, still unique, in the entertainment field. I specified that a large number of objectionable products could not be advertised in this show because of the seriousness of the material, that the inter interruptions would have to be limited in time, in frequency, in nature, and in content. So that they're within the frame of making money, which is why this thing is being made. It's going to be made with the utmost seriousness, with the utmost authenticity, and with my control. And those things are possible, even though they, I hope, they're going to make money. Mr. Rowe, seeing that you express such strong views in your writing and outside of it about the world military situation, I'd like to ask you this question. I recently quoted Dr. Harold Bosley in a speech of mine, and it was um, directed to America's you saying that you'll be America's best generation or last. I was wondering, in light of the situation and the re relentless buildup of nuclear arsenals by the superpowers, 
Do you concur with Dr. Bosley and feel that if disarmament is impossible within the next generation, existence is consequently impossible? How much time have I got? <laughs> That's a gigantic question. Very, very briefly, it often happens, and this is something for you to remember. You've already encountered it, but it haunt, it's, it's haunted me. I was talking about it this morning with, with the dean of a great college we were talking about. A problem can be very simple and stark, and the solution can be, compli uh, can be complicated incremental and requiring a great deal of time. And I think this is a classic example of it. In other words, the either or simply does not apply. You have got a confrontation, a Thucydidean confrontation of two great and radically different cultures. And when I speak of the Soviet Union as a prison, which it is, I'm not denigrating the great Russian people and the marvelous Russian culture. I think that a main hope lies in a, an evolution within the system in the Soviet Union, which I think is beginning to happen. But I don't think disarmament is immediately possible because of the, the, not only the buildup of the arms and the vested interest on both sides of the military in hanging on to this, these vast machines, but because of a, of a genuine hostility, which in my view is rooted in the fact that when Nazi Germany vanished, there was this void across which these two erstwhile allies were confronting themselves, still in a, in a posture of suspicion and fear. The Russians had June 22nd, Barbarossa. We had December 7th, Pearl Harbor. And both great cultures are haunted by this. And neither side is going to disarm overnight. But every serious step toward disarmament and every arms control association is worth supporting and is worth studying. And I think in your lifetime, you will begin to see the incremental process that will lead to peace on Earth simply because there's no alternative. And the Russians may be different, but they're not crazy any more than we're crazy.